and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Professor Aisha Zarakol, who is Professor of International Relations at the University of Cambridge, with an appointment as a politics fellow at Emmanuel College. Her latest book, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders, published in 2022, examines the notion of sovereignty and brings non-Western experiences in international relations to the forefront. Professor Aisha Zarakol joined us on June 9, 2022, to discuss the future of the liberal world order and the relationship between the West and the non-West within this context. The Phelan Center's U.S. Projects graduate intern, Mohid Malik, also joined us to ask some questions. So, President Biden has taken a decidedly different approach to international politics and the liberal world order compared to his predecessor, President Trump. Is America now really back? Thank you. I think not even the biggest supporters of Biden would claim America is fully back yet. That's partly because the problems with American foreign policy predate President Trump, or at least people's complaints about American foreign policy predate Trump. Of course, Trump made things much worse in some ways for the liberal international order. And I think European allies are happy that it's not Trump now with you know the Ukraine stuff going on, but rather Biden. So I think there is a general sense that things have improved. But to claim that the US is back in a full leadership position, I think would be overstating things. Part of the problem with the way US is perceived in the world has to do with domestic politics, this general sense of lack of governability or the idea that American domestic politics looks very messy from the outside, contrary to the image that the US had, I guess, maybe in the previous century. So while Biden is an improvement as far as that image goes, still, you know, he's aging president, he's dealing with inflation, he's dealing with a number of problems in the domestic front. So that's not really helping America's image of strong leadership or a country that has solved its own problems and therefore can be a role model for the rest of the world. Do you see the situation in Ukraine as a way that could potentially strengthen the liberal international order? Or could it perhaps be an opportunity for states to feel more cynical towards it? Mm. Yeah, we're at an interesting juncture. I mean, I personally feel a little bit more optimistic about the viability of the liberal international order, given what has transpired as a response to Ukraine than I did last year. I mean, if you ask me last year, you know, what's happening with the liberal international order, I would be more gloomy about its prospects because there seemed to be this general malaise. And the response by Europe, by the US, has been stronger than I expected. And that suggests that there is still some life <laughs> left in this order still, even if it's not going to be what some of its proponents wanted to be, a global order. I think maybe it can be salvaged as some kind of regional order that's more robust than it has been. So that's, in some ways, good news. And I think Putin, in a way, forced this by doing something so extreme that <laughs> leaders who were used to kind of accommodating him or dealing with him or striking bargains with him, they had no choice but to act given you know public pressure and so on. So in some ways, Russia's war on Ukraine has been good for the liberal international order. But at the same time, there are questions, you know, how liberal an international order or a regional order can be in a world of autocracies or trade barriers, etc. So that remains to be seen. 
various countries across Asia have decided not to openly condemn Russia's invasion or cut ties with the country. Does this signaling of a non-commitment to the West highlight a general apathy towards the liberal international order? I think it's more than apathy. I've written about this. I think countries outside of the West have real grievances, historical grievances. And they look at the liberal international order and they don't call it the liberal international order. They call it a Western order or the West. So in the minds of many, these two things are synonymous. And then it becomes this dilemma of, yeah, economically, it's a good thing perhaps for some Asian countries. At the same time, there's going to be no, you know, no tears shed, you know, if <laughs> if if it's that taken down a peg, you know. So I think more than a, an apathy there. I think this world where Asian or non-Western countries sought Western approval—that's in the past. That now they're looking at the situation. You know, how can we ourselves get out of this with minimal damage or at least some advantage? economically and if what Russia is doing, you know, ends up weakening the West or consuming the West's resources in such a way that they cannot, you know, intervene in other places, that's not bad news for Asia. I mean, at least some of Asia, I'm generalizing, obviously, there are exceptions. Can upholding the liberal international order be done without forms of coercion or disapproval? Coercion, possibly, yes, disapproval. I think for a long time, the main tool of the liberal international order has been this idea of that's now been discredited, but this is kind of the end of history. Or, you know, if you're not part of this club, you're somehow uncivilized. Again, I've written about this, the stigmatization of those who, who didn't belong or live up to these standards and the internalization of that disapproval by modernizing elites all around the world who ended up making domestic choices that kind of enforced or reinforced those norms. And what's, I think, broken down recently, much more than you know, military advantage or economic advantage, is, is the loss of that kind of social advantage, the idea that the center of the world uh, <laughs> is in the West, it's in the liberal international order. I mean, it's not completely gone away, obviously, but it's taken hits. I mean, earlier we were talking about America's image. A lot of what we call the liberal international order rested on image and reputation and the idea that people in these parts of the world <laughs> were kind of the grown-ups in the room, they knew what they were doing, there's less corruption, whatever, you know, all of these ways, like the ineffable ways that people assumed things worked better. And of course, then, you know, you get Trump, you get the financial crisis, you get the COVID stuff, you get Brexit, all of that creates this image of, well, maybe the West is not so much better than <laughs> than the rest. And then, of course, you know, there's decades of grievances, double standards, charges of hypocrisy that leaders like Putin very much, you know, used to their advantage when they're speaking to domestic populations. So all of that creates this perfect storm of who's the West, this idea of who's the West to disapprove of us. <laughs> they're no better. And then when, once you don't have that, then a lot of things don't easily fall into place. Then you get people like, you know, Erdogan and so on, who are like, He's negotiating as if he was like a mob boss or something. And why shouldn't he? You know, because that power of like disapproval is no longer there. Then it becomes just an economic transaction or like a forced transaction. Like what, you know, is and you have many more Erdogan's now than you did in the past. As your book Before the West makes clear, no order necessarily has a right to stand in perpetuity. If the post-Cold War order is to fall... What do you think will come to replace it? And actually, I'll add a little sidebar in there is, if it was to fall, how might it fall? 
Mm-hmm. In the book, I talk about historical orders of a completely different period from 13th to 17th century, focused on Asia. And when you study world history kind of in the long durée, what you see is uh, periods of fragmentation. So it's not that there is an order and overnight, <laughs> you know, it's replaced by something else. Uh, usually, at least in the periods I've looked at, orders fragmented under you know various structural pressures. By fragmented, I mean like things that held the order together, you know, trade connections or diplomatic ties or a general concern with what people over there are doing. That kind of dissipates, and then polities kind of turn inwards. They become concerned with their own affairs. I think that's how orders fragment. And then if that fragmentation doesn't last very long, then the order is replaced by something that's perhaps more similar to what existed. So it's taking that to the present. You can imagine people talk about a rules-based order replacing the liberal international order takes a hit, whether it's because of you know COVID or other pressures. Everybody kind of <laughs> deals with their own domestic problems, populism, etc. But eventually, we managed to salvage some of the existing international order. Maybe it's not so liberal, but it's still rules-based. There's still trade, etc. And many of the institutions live on yeah, in some kind of modified form. So that would be one scenario, maybe a best-case scenario for those of us who don't want to <laughs> live through radical change. Another scenario is fragmentation lasts for a very long time. So in my book, I talk about this period, 17th century. Some historians call it the general crisis of the 17th century. Decades of disruption, upheaval, what we would today call like international ties really fray. And everybody becomes consumed by like their own domestic rebellions and <laughs> their own you know, trade disrupted greatly. And then what comes next is harder to <laughs> harder to imagine. And Historically speaking, you know, that's what allowed the West eventually, but like much later to overtake the East or Asia, as I discuss in the book. Again, you know, taking that to the present, if this period of disruption that we're going through is not short-lived, if we don't somehow manage to recreate a new order and then we go into like decades of, you know, disruptions for whatever reason... That would be the worst case scenario for us who are living through it. I mean, eventually somebody will establish some some kind of order, but it is also possible to have you know decades of lack of order. You know, which if you only look at European history, it's hard to or European history post you know 17th century, it's hard to imagine that. But it is it is a historically at least it has happened. Has the continual rise of China and other nations in the East who haven't seemed to need to fully adhere to the standards of liberal internationalism? Has this shown that this order is more of an aspirational cause rather than a necessary prerequisite to an individual nation's development and its integration to the system? And does this lack of necessity further undermine its tenability? Yeah, I don't think liberalism is a prerequisite to what you call success. I mean, again, it depends on you know how you define success. I think, I mean, there are people all around the world who genuinely aspire to live in under democratic governance or embrace principles of free market capitalism. I don't think that's like a Western thing. I think there are people everywhere. And then there are people everywhere also in the West who who reject those values and would prefer to to organize economics differently or they believe democracy is a waste of time and you need strong leadership, whatever. So again, like success <laughs> defined by who certainly a country could be strong, economically strong or militarily strong without 
adhering to principles of liberal internationalism. I never subscribed to the idea that this was like the only way to get there. And then once a country is successful, it creates its own, then others want to emulate it, right? So, and then we kind of, whatever they're doing, it gets associated with success, <laughs> international success. In my first book, one of my case studies was Japan and this idea of like eating beef, like <laughs> what does it have to do with anything? But it was actually taken up in Japan in you know end of 19th century as sign of, you know, because it was associated with, <laughs> with the West and Western success. And then it, it was emulated. So then whatever you're doing, it could be completely irrelevant to your success, but it will be emulated and it will become kind of a standard or like a way to measure whether others think you're successful. Yeah. So getting back to what does that suggest about the tenability of liberal international order? I mean, it goes back to what we discussed earlier. People wanted to join the liberal international order, not because they were like liberalism. Like I read, you know, John Stuart Mill. I'm like really persuaded by <laughs> the arguments of liberalism. It was more that the West is powerful. This is a status club. And there are social, economic, political benefits that come from being in that club. And I think most people favor joining the liberal international order. Most people are around, like those who want to join, for those reasons. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who, who genuinely believe in outside of the West in principles of democracy, etc., and liberalism. But the two psychological processes are almost like separate, right? Uh, one is like seeking status. The other one is political persuasion. You mentioned how that the liberal order was back at least regionally. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and whether an order can just be regional. Because, of course, it was just the same actors, really, that were coming back, right? Yeah. It, was your, it was your France and it was your Germany. What, you know, it wasn't any other major power outside of Europe mm -hmm. that was really yeah. stepping to the cause. And so yes. if that divide exists, does that not suggest that this order is... <laughs> Doomed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, in some ways, as I was saying earlier, like the liberal international order was always a status club of mostly Western countries, but it had aspirations to be global and it also had pretensions that it was globally appealing. I mean, perhaps your question is laying bare the fact that now the fact that it isn't <laughs> has been it's evident for everybody to see. So can the liberal international order survive that like revelation, the fact that it's actually, as outsiders claimed, it's just a you know, Western alliance? I don't know. I mean, as I said, I thought weaker and the fact that at least the alliance hold to, holds together makes me believe that there is still life left <laughs> in the alliance and you could have an alliance of countries that is something between an alliance and an order. I mean, the reason why the word alliance is not enough to capture it is there are a lot of people who see in this project much more than an alliance. Alliance suggests almost something too like realpolitik, right? So, and perhaps something of that will live on. But yeah, in, in itself, it's not enough to constitute an international order. And that goes back to this point I made about like fragmentation. I mean, the question is, will something come along that ties the various like regional arrangements together, like Asia, you know, the West, in the way that the liberal international order in the 1990s and the early aughts aspired to? I don't think we know the answer to that yet.
Could you also maybe just speak on the role of soft power at all? Because, I mean, speaking of replacing an order, I think a lot of that is dependent on soft power too. If you want something to be genuinely accepted, and I would suggest that America's soft power is still unrivaled across the world. Do you see that as in comparison to like China or Russia? I suppose. I don't disagree. I mean, as I said earlier, it goes to this issue of image or reputation. I mean, that's a different way of saying it. But yeah, I think it's taken a hit. But I do agree that certainly Russia and not China have anywhere near that kind of appeal, which again goes to this issue of it almost would be better, right, that if they did, like if somebody did, because you do need that type of appeal, as you were saying, for order makers, (laughs) right, need to have more than coercion at their disposal or economic incentives. People need to believe that there is some kind of also social benefit to joining. It's not that different from high school cliques or something like, you know, the cool kids table, right? You need to have more than economic reasons uh, or more than military alliance reasons for rules and norms and expectations of an order to be embraced in practice. I mean, it, it may be that the joiners don't believe in these rules, but they still feel like they have to go through the motions because that those are the social expectations. The fact that the US can't, yes, it has a lot of soft power, but it doesn't have the kind of power it had, and certainly not Europe. So who who's going to play that role? I don't know. Well, I think that's all the questions we have for you this afternoon. Thank you so much for speaking to us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Professor Aisha Zarakal is a professor of international relations at the University of Cambridge. Professor Zarakal also spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center event, The Future of the Liberal World Order, on Thursday, the 9th of June, 2022. You can find a podcast of the event at lsc.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states forward slash events. And that's it for this extra inning of the ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Aisha Zarakal for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Mohid Malik. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.